This episode of New Politics was released on the 17th of December, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, part one of our review of the year in politics, and this week we revisit the biggest event of the year, the 2022 federal election. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, expert on the Nag Hammadi scrolls. Now the big news is that we've just published our new book and it's called Diary of an Election Victory and it's hot off the press and it's so hot off the press that we haven't actually seen the copies of it. And it's 302 pages of action-packed drama. It tells the story of all the trials and tribulations of the election campaign. We don't need to give a spoiler alert because everyone knows how it ends. But for all of those people that like to read about politics during their holidays, I think this is an excellent read for the holiday period. It was a really enjoyable process putting it together. And yeah, I think it reads really well. And it's, a, I think, a very useful record of those quite intense and quite nail-biting six weeks. I think we managed to look at what happened in a way that we see things that other commentators either didn't see or weren't focused on. I think it's a pretty decent addition to the historical record, and I'm excited about it. So it's available from Amazon, Booktopia, Barnes & Noble, and if you don't like George Bezos at Amazon or any of those other multinational corporations, you can purchase the paperback book directly from New Politics, and all the details are available at newpolitics.com.au. Our $10 per month Patreon subscribers will receive a free e-book copy of our new book, and all Patreon subscribers will receive a 50% discount on the printed version of the book. So it's another good reason to support New Politics on Patreon and support independent journalism. It was a big year in politics, and the biggest event was the federal election in May. And it wasn't clear who was actually going to win the election. And even though the polls were suggesting that Labor was going to win, even that first hour on election night seemed to suggest that the coalition was on track to get their second consecutive surprise election victory. Didn't quite work out that way. Labor achieved a narrow victory. There were many seats won by the independents and the coalition lost badly. Now, just before the 1996 election, Paul Keating said that when the government changes, the country changes as well. And he lost that election to John Howard. And John Howard changed the country in a way that I think that we're still feeling the effects of. But there's now a new government, a new prime minister in Anthony Albanese. And he seems to be travelling pretty well at the moment, six months into his prime ministership. But in the earlier parts of the election campaign, it didn't actually look like he would get there. No, the press really didn't like the notion that the Liberal Party might lose. And we've discussed these reasons over and over again as to why that was B. And, of course, we also understand that it's not all the press. There was some really good analysis. I don't want to say support of the Labor Party, but there were some fair journalists out there. I think that's the best way of putting it. Given that the anti-Albanese, they tried the tactic that they tried with Bill Shorten, which did seem to have some success. Oh, there's just something about him you can't trust. No one actually said, well, 
he did this. There were rumours that floated around about certain things that he had been investigated and cleared for. There was rumours around that he was somehow dodgy with very few details, let alone evidence, given. But it worked. I think a lot of people weren't sure that they could trust Bill Shorten. With Anthony Albanese, they couldn't quite say you can't trust him because he'd been around in politics since the mid-90s. So he'd been around for 20-some years. He had been a prominent member of the Rudd government and the Gillard government, a prominent opposition figure from 1996 through to 2007, Minister for Infrastructure uh, and a known figure. And, of course, his wife was uh, in New South Wales, Labor minister under the Carr governments and subsequent governments. So their approach of, oh, we just don't know who he is, was actually laughable from a group of organisations who had reported on him and who clearly knew who he was. So that tactic of trying to seed a reasonable doubt, I guess, in the mind of the public didn't work as effectively as they would have wanted it to. I'm sure that there were some people who did think, yeah, I don't really know who he is either. But ultimately, I think it's fair to say that the the Liberal Party lost the election. And governments, it's normally governments who lose election, but the Liberal Party comprehensively and decisively lost the election in a way that few governments have. I guess all the evidence in the lead up to the election campaign that they probably started setting in maybe midway through 2021 that the Labor Party slowly started turning the polls around at that stage and seems like it was likely to win the election based on two factors and just on all the corruption and incompetence that we could see coming in from the Morrison government. And the other factor was that the opinion polls, they kept on saying that Labor was going to win the election. There were 104 consecutive polls that pretty much said the same thing, that Labor was going to win. But I think because of what happened in the 2019 election, when there were over 100 consecutive polls to say that Bill Shorten was going to win the election, only for him to go on and lose. So a lot of people didn't want to believe the polls, and that's for good reason, I'd say. Or they just couldn't imagine that Albanese could win, and especially a lot of commentators in the mainstream media. But you look back now and you think, well, it was obvious that the Labor Party was going to win if you looked at all the evidence, but no one was really too sure. So the election night itself, it was tense, but it ended up being a solid Labor victory anyway. And Labor gets a small but a genuine majority. A lot of the coalition vote, of course, goes to independent candidates and eats away at, or Liberal Party, the National Party, doesn't change its position at all. And that's that's an interesting phenomenon that we'll have to get back to. But the coalition lost it in their heartland. They took their safest seats for granted in two ways, in that they didn't have terribly good candidates in their seats. And two, they last election, they had done the strategy of trying to win over those swinging seats in Melbourne and Sydney's West and in other parts of the country and completely neglected their own heartland. And this is where they lose. And, okay, North Sydney had gone to independence before. Ted Mack had been the longest-serving independent in the lower house for North Sydney. Wentworth had gone to independence before. Karen Felt won it for half a term before she was brought down in those by-elections to do with Australian citizenship and couldn't afford to run the campaign to the way that the Liberals did. Dave Sharma was returned. But seats like Kuyong, seats like Goldstein, had been 
pure liberal or pure non-labor or pure major non-labor since their inception. To lose Kuyong, Menzies seat, to lose Goldstone, to lose Victoria in particular, really showed its disdain for the party. Victoria has had enough of the party that was formed there. It's really interesting. Now, the party leadership had been dominated by New South Wales candidates. Morrison, Abbott, Turnbull, Howard had all been from New South Wales. That may be a factor, but I think the bigger factor is that those local members had let their constituents down and their constituents had had enough of it and showed them. And there were those five key issues that you identified, David, and the first one was that move away from uh, the major political parties. And in 1949, the vote obtained by the major parties, and that's the Labor Party, the Liberal Party and the Country Party at that time, which is now known as the National Party, they received 96% of the primary vote. And in 2022, they've received just under 70%. So that's expected to go lower as time goes on as well. And that's not just a phenomenon within federal politics. It happens across states and territory elections as well. So it's the lowest primary vote on record for the major parties. And there's more candidates and more political parties that are entering elections. And as a result, we end up getting the largest crossbench ever, and it's 16 as a result of the 2022 election. And David, you've also talked about the realignment of politics that you could see coming. Now, I think you've been talking about this for about the past four or five years, so it's actually happened. There is a realignment of politics, and there's also changing demographics as well. And with Gen Z, that's all the people who were born after 1996, and they first voted in the 2016 federal election, and their number is growing. But at the 2022 election, just 26% of Generation Z, just 26% voted for the coalition and 67% voted for Labor and the Greens. So that's a group that's growing. And I think that's going to cause problems for the coalition in future elections as well. Yeah. And of course, as one generation grows because they're growing up and getting older, on the other end, a generation shrinks because they're literally dying off. And I'm not saying that this is a happy thing or a good thing at all. It's just a demographic fact. And the other thing too is that not I know that not every person over the age of 60 instantly turns into a liberal voter. Uh, I know a lot of our listeners are what might be considered seniors, and hello to all of you. Oh, we've also got quite a few younger listeners as well. Yeah, of course. What I'm saying is when we're looking at these demographic tendencies, we have to remember that they are tendencies and that we can't assume that someone who was born in, I don't know, 1943 is going to have three houses on Sydney Harbour or in Turak and be a self-funded retiree and vote solidly liberal. They may well, but it's not something that you should assume. What we do see, though, is that younger voters are very concerned about their future, which has always been the case, of course, but they're concerned for it in a much more practical way than in the past, whereas before a young 19 or 20-year-old might be worried about taxes down the track and employment and how will they go to university? Are they happy to pay for it? Do they want it free? Blah, blah, blah. What about TAFE and what have you? Younger people today still concerned about that, but are also concerned about the impact of the environment. And that's why I think the coalition's vote was so low. And with the internet, there's a lot more awareness of environmental issues. There's a lot more awareness of what climate change is doing. 
the mainstream papers do their very best to hide or suppress or diminish these types of things. But young people aren't reading mainstream papers and they're not watching mainstream television. A lot of young people don't even own a television. And when they do, it's so that they can hook their gaming devices through it or streaming service devices through it. And that relates to another issue that you've identified as a factor in the election, and that was the decline of the role of the mainstream media. And there's no verifiable data about this. It's just based on what we see and what we hear. But despite all of the one-sided reporting, it just didn't seem to make any difference at all to the election result. And that was a similar issue that arose in the Victoria election with almost blanket anti-Labor and anti-Daniel Andrews coverage ultimately made no difference at all. And I think there's a few issues going on here, like circulation levels for legacy media. That's gone right down the Daily Telegraph, their daily circulation is now around 300,000 per day and they've actually stopped auditing their circulation figures. I think they stopped doing that in late 2019. In 1980, just as a comparison, their daily subscription was 1.4 million copies and it's a similar circulation situation for the Sydney Morning Herald and we're focused on Sydney. Well, as we know, Sydney is the centre of the universe. Hello to all of our friends in Perth and Hobart and everywhere else. What are those places? No, I'm joking. <laughs> but it is a similar story in other parts of Australia as well. So in 1980, almost every adult was reading one of the two newspapers. But 40 years later, in 2022, it's down to around 10%. So that's a dramatic change. And I know that there's access to news on the internet, but the Daily Telegraph and the Sydney Morning Herald, they're competing with everything else that's available on the internet. But it's the same story for The Age, for The Herald Sun, The Courier Mail, The West Australian, The Advertiser, The Mercury. The news and information, they're still putting out their information, but the news that they're putting out has been dissipated. And that's one factor to come out of the federal election and I think verified in the recent Victoria election that the media is not the main influencer in election outcomes anymore and it's unlikely to be an influencer in future elections. It was interesting that Anthony Albanese rejects going and meeting with News Corp. Oh, that's right. That's almost been a rite of passage for opposition leaders for the past 60, Mm. 70 years. Yeah. Famously, Gough Whitlam left fairly appalled with Rupert Murdoch, finding him never having read anything of any substance and being focused purely on money. Paul Keating, I think, was a little bit more diplomatic. But every leader of the opposition of both sides has had that meeting, particularly when there's been a chance that they could win. I guess to set out their agenda and to plead their case for better press and to guarantee that News Corp's position in the legislative agenda wasn't going to change or was going to improve. Whereas Anthony Albanese doesn't do that. And they run the campaign against him. He had an extremely scandal-free team. Nobody embarrassed the opposition then. Nobody was caught out in any kind of scandal that might have damaged. With the possible exception of pre-selection of Christina Keneally, which was a broader problem than just the candidate. I don't think we can say to Christina Keneally, it was all your fault that you lost the seat of Fowler. She shouldn't have been pre-selected for the seat. She should have been put higher on the Senate. Yeah, nobody was arrested. (laughs) That's always a good sign in an opposition. And that has happened in the past, at state level anyway. Nobody had to stand down quickly and quietly for family reasons, as far as I can remember. So... The Labor team was exceptionally strong and 
the press had couldn't really get their hooks in to dig into it. And when they did, it was very quickly ignored. There was that gaff in the first week that really wasn't a gaff that Adam Bant shuts down when they try it on him with gotcha questions asking for arcane bits of really trivia. And he says, Google it, mate. And the press stopped that because suddenly every politician they ask has the answer. You don't know what the unemployment rate is in northern New South Wales? Google it. Because, again, that's how ministers work. They don't have to know everything, but they have to be able to work with the information that they have. And I'll be fair, too, with the Labor Party, we haven't had a scandal. Normally in the first three weeks, there's someone who's got their travel claims wrong or they've employed someone who they shouldn't have employed, whether knowingly or not, or they've outfitted their office way too expensively. And we haven't had any of that. Now, I'm sure there's a bit of smart media management in that, in that anything that's going to be a problem has been headed off at the pass, as it were. But I think also Labor has put forward a very, very strong team. And that came through in the electoral campaign, not as successfully as they might have. They only get a two or three seat majority, but you only need one. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can also donate to New Politics through Patreon. And please share, comment, or add a review. It helps other listeners find our podcast. In the previous episode of New Politics, we mentioned that the information that Labor had identified in their election review, that Scott Morrison was the biggest factor in in their election victory. And of course, the leader, whether they're good or not, they will have a big influence in the way that people vote. But it just wasn't Scott Morrison. The coalition had a lot of serial underperformers. They had Melissa Price as minister. They had Michaelia Cash as the Attorney General. Barnaby Joyce was the Deputy Prime Minister. And Maybe 30 years ago, you'd look around at these people, and if you were the Prime Minister, you'd be thinking, oh, God, you know, you're no good to be Minister. You're going to be on the backbench forever. You've got to be joking. But in the modern Liberal Party, these people are the senior figures within their party. So, sure, it can be argued that Scott Morrison was a big drag on the vote, but so was everyone else in the coalition. I think, again, this neglect that the Liberal Party had to its backbench, where I think there were probably some decent representatives who looked after the interests of their electorate, who pushed what was best for their electorate, etc. John Alexander, at least from my end, springs to mind. But most of the Liberal Party candidates shouldn't have been there. We know that there had been a purge of moderates. Tina McQueen, who is president of the Liberal Party, was laughing about how they'd got rid of all the lefties 
in the party without realizing that the broader you can make your party without tearing it apart, the more electorally successful you'll be. There were no consequences for her on that, interestingly enough. Just some bad press. But the far right of the party were more interested in not governing. Now, one of the things with the, and when I say far right, I mean the extreme drives. And this whole process of left and right is breaking down too. Because is Josh Frydenberg on the far right the same type of far right as a anti-Dan Andrews QAnon supporter? Maybe. Of course, Frydenberg tries to reinvent himself as a moderate. Way too little, too late, and no one believed him. Oh, but I do think that that relationship between the the right or far right and and the Liberal Party itself, there's a, there's a host of other issues that come into that as well. And that's, again, it's another key issue that you've identified in the book, that there's that issue of religion and also that breach of the separation of the state and the church. And Morrison's venture into these areas, and I think it made people a little bit uneasy. And it seems that in public life in Australia, people really don't care what your religion is, but they don't really want to hear about it that much. And Morrison did want people to hear about it and hear about it quite loudly. There was that time that he allowed media cameras into video record at the Horizon Church. There's also that push that he had for the religious discrimination bill, the bill that no one seemed to really want. And the way that he was pushing socially conservative issues on gender within the last election and he was also pushing for people like Catherine Deves to run in the Liberal Party and a lot of these people are unrepresentative of the public and Scott Morrison's religious views are not representative of the public and sure if you were running for election in Salt Lake City well maybe you'd have a good case over there but provided you were a Mormon (laughs) Well, that's right. But Australia is not a theological state and there does need to be a separation between the state and religion. And that issue of getting more marginal and radical religious groups involved within branches of the Liberal Party, I think that's going to cause election problems for them in the future. It certainly caused trouble for them at the 2022 election, but that's one thing that they have to really look out for in the future. Most of our political leaders have been Christian, at least in the culture they were brought up in. The only non-Christians that I can think of, and we certainly haven't had any official Buddhists or Hindus or Jews or Sikhs or any of the, you know, any non-Christian religion, the only exceptions I can think of are Gillard Hawke Curtin, who were atheists. I would argue John Howard, who introduces the Lord's Prayer, probably under pressure from certain elements of his party and and well he also appointed a yeah. an anglican bishop as the governor general as well that didn't work out very well for him which didn't work out well for him no but he's not a regular church attender kevin rudd of course had a very deep faith based on the social justice teachings of bonhoeffer and the only other exception is of course alfred deacon who was a spiritualist holding séances and trying to communicate with the dead but he kept that extremely quiet he presented as a a vague Protestant, but was really something else altogether. Apart from that, I don't think Kevin Rudd's religious beliefs ever impinged on his policy work, except giving a broad framework, I guess, for what is the right thing to do here. I don't think Julia Gillard's atheism ever impinged on her policy works. Certainly funding to Catholic schools and religious schools doesn't get cut. But yeah, Australians tend to have this broad tolerance. No one wants to shut churches down. No one wants to doubt anybody else's faith or lack of faith journey. And nobody wants it shoved down their throat. 
and certainly if Morrison was trying to go for a Pentecostal theocracy, and there's evidence to suggest that perhaps he might have been, it was never going to fly. And particularly with Julia Gillard, there was a bit of, oh, he shouldn't allow atheists in, and from that faction of right-wing political Christians who think that they should run the place, there was a bit of noise over that, to which we can add the always uh, potent and always present sexism that she wasn't married, that she didn't have children, and she was an atheist, made her basically the Antichrist. And there's also a perception that Labor didn't get the massive victory that they should have got. Now, taking into account all the corruption that was running around, Morrison's incompetence, woeful behaviour, not just over the past three years, but pretty much the past nine years of coalition government. And this is an issue that started to arise during the election night coverage as part of the media's process to downplay Labor's victory. And it's always a case where it doesn't matter what Labor does, it's never good enough and it just always has to be better. But in politics, it doesn't really matter what you win by. And as Tanya Plibersek said on election night, a win is a win is a win. Mm. And Labor needed 76 seats to win the election and they ended up getting 77. But if you win 77 seats or 97 seats, you're still going to govern in pretty much the same way. Morrison governed as though he had a majority of a 1,000 seats, even though his majority was only three. And whatever the margin is, that's more for the history books than anything else. So when you take everything into account, well, maybe Labor should have won by more seats, but they still won the election and that's all that matters. Yeah, and they don't lose it. The interesting thing, and I'm not even sure that we pick this up, is that the Liberal Party lose it badly and that the seats that don't go to Labor, which traditionally would have gone to Labor and 20 years ago it would have been a, a landslide victory to Labor, they'd have got about 102 seats. But it's really rumbling from within safe Liberal seats and nominally Liberal seats and that people turn their vote away from the Liberal Party in particular. And I think this is something that will take maybe a couple of election cycles to settle into. And this is where it's vital for the Liberal Party to really sit down and have a good hard look at itself. Now, I've already mentioned in previous podcasts that they did do a very good roundup in which Scott Morrison gets a lot of the blame, but rightly not all the blame. I'm not trying to defend Morrison here. But if they'd said, oh, Scott Morrison was to blame, we got rid of him, we can now present to the electorate exactly what we did before, the same result's going to happen. And it's not in their best interests, and I'd argue it's not in Australia's best interests. Or maybe it is. Maybe it's time for the Liberal Party to be totally shut down and we move to a a more Labour and then some kind of Teal Party under a new name, under new administration, and maybe that's the way we go. Anything can happen at this point too. It's become very exciting. I think that when you look at how Labor's been travelling over the past seven months since the election in May, I think this now appears that the election result has been validated. They've implemented the Anti-Corruption Commission legislation. That was something that the electorate really, really wanted to see. They've reformed industrial relations. They've repaired the relationship with Pacific Islands. They've started repairing the relationship with China. They've put the voice to Parliament on the political map. They've introduced legislation to stabilise energy prices. Now, all of these things aren't going to appeal to everyone in the electorate, but no, they're not. still doing pretty well. So they're a government that wants to do things. They don't want to waste time. But if you look at some of the things that they've achieved over the past seven months, and some people have said, well, look, they've already achieved things, more things over the past seven months than the coalition managed to achieve over nine years. But the fact is that they're riding high in the polls at the moment. 
and of course that's not going to last forever, but this suggests that the public is happy with the choice that they made at the 2022 federal election. I think a return to some normality and 2020, 2021 and 2022 were very hard years. We were dealing with a global pandemic in which there were mixed messages being sent. The state governments, with the exception of New South Wales, were to a point trying to defeat this thing. The federal government was seemed not interested in defeating it and keeping the economy going at all costs, and that was the New South Wales government as well. It lasted a lot longer. We're still in the middle of it. If you look at the figures of who's got it and who's in hospital, the figures are larger now than they were when we were all when we were hopefully at the peak. Most pandemics last about two years. This has gone for three. And it's almost as if every government now has just decided it's too hard. We can't deal with the political consequence anymore. They've given up and are hoping that it will just go away. I'd argue that if the federal government and the New South Wales government had acted properly at the start, we would be through it now. But that's another story for another day. And my point was is that the, the electorate in every seat had had an extremely hard time. Okay, maybe not World War Two or World War One hard or Great Depression hard, but pretty hard. Jobs became very fragile. Incomes were destroyed. Investment stopped. It became hard to do anything. If you lived in the wrong areas of Sydney, you were locked in a lot harder. Melbourne had some long and hard lockdowns, all in vain thanks to the behaviours of other governments. I can see why there are people frustrated. I don't mean the anti-Dan cookers. I mean normal people who have a sane view of the world. But Labor has managed to bring people back to some normality. As I said, ministers are doing their job and writing policy and getting stuff done and, and making sure that the country is being governed. Now, not everything they've done has been right or correct or maybe the best strategy, but it hasn't been just a rot to enrich the minister and their friends. And I think the people of Australia have noticed this and appreciate it. It'll be interesting to see what the NAC, NACC brings out when that's up and running. I know that there have been some people sceptical of it. I know that there are some people, I think there are some people who are expecting way too much of it. But yeah, we will see. And next week, we continue our review of the year in politics and we look at the role of Scott Morrison. He was Prime Minister for the first half of the year and He's providing evidence of the Robo-Debt Royal Commission at the moment, so we'll assess that next week. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.